It is good to be with you this morning, to be able to gather as the people of God, to be encouraged with the songs that are proclaimed and the prayers lifted high to the one who is able to provide all of our, our needs and to minister to our souls. It is so good to be with you this Lord's Day. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and you may say, well, hold on, didn't we skip over a few chapters, and hopefully I can fill in some of the gaps in explaining that. If you do not have a Bible, there should be some Bibles around you, maybe under the, the seat in front of you. We refer to those as our pew Bibles. You will find this passage on page 259 of the pew Bible. If you do not own a Bible, please see that as our, our gift to you. Please take God's Word and, and read it. Stake your life upon it, please. It is the very words of our Father. So we are looking at the Davidic covenant today in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and seeking to round out our sermon series. We've been in 1 Samuel for some time, and last Lord's Day we we dipped into the first chapter of 2 Samuel, and before we leave this sermon series, we, we wanted to see David um, anointed as king, enthroned as king, and to see really a text that is crucial in understanding God's grand plan of redemption. And so I don't know if you've spent much time thinking about the covenant that God made with David, the Davidic covenant, but I pray that um, as we think about biblical theology, understanding God's redemptive plan from beginning to end, that, this, that the Lord would use this message, this passage, to, to bring clarity, to help maybe for some a penny drop and things kind of shift and fall into place of, of making more sense of what we read in the old and what we read in the new and what, what God is up to from Genesis chapter 1 in creating the heavens and the earth to the end of Revelation where we, we hear of this hope of the return of the king, the new heavens and the new earth and all things that are wrong and broken be made right. I pray that this passage would help fill in some of those, those details, uh, giving a better understanding of what God is up to, Yahweh's forever promise. We're going we're gonna to actually read first through uh, verse 17, so please follow along as I read. Now when the king, that's David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been, been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, 
Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to, to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Hear the word of the Lord. What we see at the beginning of this chapter, if you have been following along with all that has transpired in David's life, this should actually be somewhat earth-shattering because he's experiencing now something that maybe for the first time in his adulthood he has experienced, which is rest. He is actually in a home, a magnificent home, and he is experiencing rest. Not that he's just kind of slowed down, but the Lord has given him rest from all the enemies around him. Now, for those of us who have been following through this story of David, this is, this is, this is alarming in a good way. This is, this is a, a change that has occurred in his life that has been like nothing that he's experienced in years and years. And so as this chapter opens, with, finding, with David finding himself experiencing this, this rest both for him and for the nation Israel, we read that he goes to Nathan and he wants to do something. After King Saul's death, so this is going to give us a little bit of context in the chapters that we've, we've missed or, or passed over to get to chapter 7. After King Saul's death, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 3 that there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. What we also hear is that David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. You may say, well, I thought Saul died. He perished. 
what was going on. Well, we're introduced to quite the account that, that covers a few chapters. All that transpires between Abner, who was, who was Saul's commander, and, and Joab, who was David's commander. All that's happening between them, even murder, and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, who was placed by Abner to be king temporarily in one location while David and Hebron is, is king in another. All that's happening in those, in those chapters, we, we see kind of culminating in chapter 7. So after all that that was happening, there's more. In chapter 5 and 6, we see the enthronement of David finally over Israel and Judah. We see his conquest of Jerusalem, actually making that the city of David, and his defeat of the Philistines. And we also read in these chapters in between the ark of the Lord coming to Jerusalem. Now, just for some homework and further study, I encourage you to go and read chapters 2 through 6 of 2 Samuel to, to see all the details that has transpired. But, but that's what brings us up to, to chapter 7, this rest that David is finally experiencing. We do not, we do, we do not know how long how much time has elapsed since the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem, but it was long enough for David's palace to have been erected with all the materials and craftsmen sent by King Hiram of Tyre. And now, with this glorious palace, there's something um, disjoint, disjointed for David, something not right, something unsettling. And it's, it's basically this, and this is what he comes to Nathan uh, to, to propose. He finds himself sitting, resting in this glorious home. And yet the tent, the, the ark is in a tent. So if you're just comparing this contrast, the king is experiencing the lavish lifestyle while the representation of God, the one who has delivered and provided all of this, seems to be in a place that's not appropriate for his glory. And so David wants to do something about it. And he goes to Nathan and he basically pitches this idea. This isn't right and I want to make it right. I want to build a house for the Lord. This desire to build for, for David is, we would say it was a, an overflow of his spiritual fervor and his humility that would urge him to even notice this, this unbalanced situation. He is experiencing peace, the people of Israel, and yet the ark is, is still in this kind of temporary tent. And in this part of the passage, there's a, an emphasis on him recognizing what he has done and what he desires to do for God. And then this is kind of how it unfolds. Nathan tells him to go and do, it sounds, it sounds right, it sounds good, but God, that very night, comes and clarifies that that's actually not his plan for David. So David had a desire to build for God, and God basically responds, You will not build me a house. I will make you a house. That's a key promise that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God's doing something here that I do not want us to miss in communicating to David that it is not, it's not David that will build him a house. It's kind of like that word house is just loaded 
and, and huge impact on understanding what God is up to and, and responding to David's desire to build a house. It's not as if God has ever needed a house, where we hear this from God, or even lobbied for a house. The king may have a palace, but God has lived amongst his people. God unashamedly declares to David, I have been moving about in a tent with all the people of Israel. The tabernacle actually is revealing something powerful about God. It's revealing the glory of God who graciously, think about this, the creator of the heavens and the earth, moving around in this tabernacle made, put together, and assembled by men, graciously condescends to go with his people in order to care for his people, to save his people. God is unchanging. He is trying to help David understand who he is in responding to this desire of David's to build him a house. Israel may have thought that they were carrying around God in this temporary tabernacle, but the whole time God is helping his people understand that it is he that has been carrying them the whole time. The Bible actually provides several reasons why God would not permit David to build him a house, this temple. The explanation that David actually shares with his son Solomon much later was that he had been a man of war, whereas the temple was to signify God's peace. He says to, to, Saul, my, uh, to, to Solomon, sorry, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. That's 2 Chronicles chapter 22. But here we don't necessarily get that specific reason why. David and Nathan reasoned apart from divine revelation, thinking that this was a pretty good idea. And then the word of the Lord came to Nathan and clarified their thinking naturally tended towards a work that they could accomplish to show God how much they loved him. It was commendable for David to desire to do this type of work for God, to accomplish this great deed for him. But God was trying to show David something here. This was, in, in, in this chapter, an unfolding of God's great plan of redemption, and he needed David to clearly understand who it is that is saving, who it is that is building. David needed this reminder. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Every word matters. Why did God not say to be king and ruler over my people? to emphasize to David that it is God who is the king. David, you are prince over my people. I have entrusted this care to you, but I am the one. David, I will build a house for you. Everything David has, God is trying to help him understand it is a gift. The reason why David will not build the temple 
is to prevent any suggestion that God depends on human assistance. It's we humans, and David needs to hear this, and it will have ripple effects with the people of God. We are the ones who are utterly dependent for God to build. And so there is this kind of wordplay happening just to help his servant, David, understand why it is that God is the one who will build and not David. Everything David has is only by God's grace. And David needed to hear this. He needed it to seep into his very marrow and understand it is by grace and grace alone. And I will submit to you, when we look at his prayer of gratitude, the latter part of this chapter, it's seeping in. He recognizes in even more clarity as God continues to reveal himself and his plan that God is, is awesome. He is amazing. Don't even have the words to describe his glory. He is the one who is lifted high and he is the one who will build. God's covenant with David in this chapter. Owen Palmer Robertson, Robertson refers to this Davidic covenant as the climax of the Old Covenant. The promises made in 2 Samuel chapter 7, really, if you're reading through Scripture, establishes the last of God's covenant dealings before the New Covenant. God's revelation through Scripture is progressive. It is progressively unfolding as we're working through his revealed word. And here we see in the Davidic covenant, God's plan of redemption unfolding in a more clear way than it ever has before up until this point in time. So this progressive revelation, we actually see a prime example of it here in the Davidic covenant. So to just rewind for a moment, all the way back to the garden, Adam broke the covenant of works by sinning. God promised a covenant of grace that would bring salvation to his fallen people, Genesis 3.15. This is how that seed in germinal form was first presented to God's people. I will send the seed of the woman who will strike the head of the serpent. And then we watch God gloriously thread that theme of the seed of the woman all the way through his redemptive plan. We get to Abram, who God calls out of a pagan people to make a people of his own. And he promises to Abraham this offspring of yours. This seed of yours, singular, I will bless. And, and, and through that seed, the nations will be blessed. And we keep following that seed in germinal form, the progressive revelation we get here, and we're told in this covenant that God makes with David that this seed that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 is a royal seed. Never before was it this clear and unfolded in such a way to understand that 
the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, is a royal seed. It will be David's son. And then we hear all the promises made to David's son. Richard Phillips helpfully comments, having previously ruled Israel from his kind of mobile sanctuary, the tabernacle moving around, God establishes a permanent location for his throne. God himself associates his kingship, which was always a reality, with the throne of David. And so the people of God are starting to understand more and more who really is ruling and reigning. And it is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who has given his servant David to be prince over his people. In the Davidic covenant, God rules over his people, and now it's given in a more concrete manifestation. In so doing, the line through which the Redeemer would come, right here in 2 Samuel 7, is is clarified for us, is revealed to us. Now, for some of us who have grown up in the church and have read Scripture a lot, that may not land on you the way it should. But as we've been moving through this, this book of 1 Samuel, we have seen, remember, this is coming off the the cusp of the judges, where everyone was doing right in their own eyes. There was no king to rule them. Then we watched this king raised up who was really more a king like the nations, and we watched how that really just imploded, King Saul. And now we're getting a glimpse of what it looks like for a king who has, who, who has a, a mind and a heart for the Lord. And, and the blessing and the rest, all of this is, is but a shadow of what's to come, the substance. But we're getting more and more of God revealing his glorious plan of redemption and how it is that he's going to fulfill all of those promises that he has made to redeem a people for himself. Now, when we heard in these verses, primarily verses 8 through 17, the the Davidic covenant laid out the promises that that God made to David, after we've heard those things and and thinking about those things, we have to then just kind of take a step back and say, well, then how do we explain history? Uh, In particular, what happens post-King David? with the people of Israel. How long did, did this rest last? How long did it, did it seem to last all that God was, was laying out here before David that sounded so amazing? And we read from Scripture that, that David, he ruled as king for about 40 years. Then Solomon, his son, the seed of David, is the one who actually builds the temple, builds the house the physical temple that was so glorious and and what what God had said, not you, David, but your son will. And what we see in that is that there's there's immediate fulfillment happening here. But but what does he end up doing? I'm trying to kind of scratch a little bit at, man, this doesn't seem to unfold the way that God promised that it would. Because if if you've read through Solomon's reign, it started out really good, 
But then he ends up committing what we would call spiritual uh, uh, harlotry. In, in 1 Kings chapter 11, we're told of what Solomon does, which is really kind of gross idolatry, marrying many, pagans, many pagan wives and, and that leading him away from God. And what is the consequence? When he dies, the kingdom is immediately split in two. If you kind of remember the, the, the outworkings of this uh, devastating blow to Israel, Rehoboam, one king, and Jeroboam, the other. The north and the south. The north is Israel, the south is Judah. And years pass, and Israel experiences wicked king after wicked king. And then we see the Assyrian invasion in 722 B.C., and it's what God said in this Davidic promise, if we read closely and heard it, Israel is experiencing the rod and led us away into captivity, being disciplined. The kings of the south, they last a little bit longer with very few bright spots. And in 586 BC, we see the Babylonians come in and come swiftly and over, overthrow the entire kingdom of God. And it seems that God's covenant is... is on the cusp, or if already has been, thwarted. We heard the word forever used multiple times in verse 13 and 16 used twice. Forever, this dynasty of David's will stand. There are threats that look like they truly will thwart God's promised salvation. There's a, promise, a, a, a problem of death that needs to be dealt with as we look at all this. There's a problem of sin and there's a problem of time. All of those problems seem to be stacking up in this promise that God has made. Now, what do the prophets make of this? Isaiah, for example, he begins talking about a stump. Where once you look at David and his dynasty, his royal line as a, as a beautiful tree... And now it has been cut down and there remains just a stump. It's a result of God's judgment of his people, both through Assyria and Babylon. Nevertheless, though, Isaiah also saw that while the Davidic line would seem to be dead, life would remain within the stump. A shoot, life barely detectable at first, would by God's grace, grow. It would emerge. But once this shoot went forth, it would, again, by God working out his plan, it would become a mighty tree. Isaiah begins drawing this picture, prophesying towards this end. A king of humble origins would be a signal for the nations after all the exile. We hear this in Isaiah chapter 11. Verses 1 and 2 in particular. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Yes, Israel, you have sinned. Yes, judgment and destruction, but... Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, 
when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That doesn't sound like any of the kings that we read about in First and Second Kings. That's Jeremiah chapter 23. How are we to interpret all of this? Very important in hermeneutics, in interpreting God's word, we go to the New Testament and interpret the old through the new. And so hear what the angel Gabriel, many, many years later, who appeared to Mary, says in Luke chapter 1, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Please listen to the words. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Therefore, we hear from God's word beyond any shadow of a doubt that the Bible clearly lays out that the promise to David and to his descendants that they would rule forever is fulfilled, culminates upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, the Lord of David. And Jesus is the one who now reigns at the right hand of the Father and is the true king over the house of Israel. Amen. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're going, okay, I've heard a lot about Israel and their king. Is this good news for those of us who do not come from the bloodline of the Jews, ethnic Israel? And the beautiful answer given by God's word is that there is much hope for the Gentiles because we too benefit from the Davidic covenant. I want to take us to Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. Because it's there where things are truly crystallized. So again, as we're thinking about God's revelation being progressive, we'll think about it continuing to progress into the New Testament. So what we read in the New shines bright on the Old and illuminates what the Old actually means. We see that playing out in the Jerusalem Council. At the Council... If you remember, there were big issues between Jews and Gentiles when the gospel was going forth. The issue was whether Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved. The apostles saw themselves as the heirs of the Old, Old Testament promises made to Israel. The Messiah, the son of David, had come. He had died for their sins and had been raised from the dead, rules in heaven, and is promised to come again to judge and reign on the earth. And so the big question, could Gentiles benefit from all this without becoming Jews? And at the council, Peter first gets up and he tells of how the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit just like the Jews had. And then Paul and Barnabas tell of their success on their missionary journeys among the Gentiles. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, 
really gives the summation. He brings it all together in verses 14 through 18 with a reference to the Davidic covenant, quoting from Amos and how it relates to the Gentiles. Please hear what James says. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. That's really important. The prophets agree that this is the reality. After this, I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. This is powerfully important in understanding God's grand plan of redemption. So just briefly, all the way back to Babel, man trying to make, make much of themselves, build high to almost become their own God. We, we, are, we are in the know. We can, we can do this. And they build. And do you remember what happens? The Lord scatters them. And so there's this amazing scattering of the peoples. And then God calls Abram. And so he narrows down and he makes a people unto himself. And we've already talked a little bit about this, but through that people, God is going to undo all the effects of the fall. Adam, as the representative of man, failed. And because he sinned, we all have sinned. And we all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. God made this promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so calling Abram, it really narrows down. And for a long time, he is doing a work within a people of Israel. All the way until the Lord Jesus Christ lives the life that is perfect and dies the death that needed to, be, that, that needed to, to, to happen in order for him to be the, the substitute, the, the one who atones for the sin of his people. He was buried and was resurrected on the third day, and, and, God, and God ascended, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. All of that was accomplished, and then we get to Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, and what we see there is the undoing of Babel. Do you remember how the Spirit fell and they began to speak in tongues of all the different nations? This was the really the, the battle cry, the testimony that what God had begun is, is actually coming to fruition, culminating on Christ and through Christ. This was not just for the ethnic people of Israel, but this was God making a redemption for all who would call upon Jesus Christ, repent of their sins and believe upon him for salvation, both Jews and Gentiles. And this is where both rest and house that we read in chapter 7 really come to life. Only in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life, can one experience true rest. And this house that God said, no, I will build a house, this house is made up of all the nations. Every tongue 
and every tribe represented all through the one who rules the house, the Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. Isaiah said, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And then in Revelation chapter 11, this is what we look forward to. This is our hope of the new heavens and the new earth. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, with all of that said, I want to draw your attention briefly to David's prayer of gratitude. The Davidic covenant, the promise that God has made, this is how his servant responds which for us who have experienced salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ, should respond. Verse 18, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name, and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Please note the movement, the physical movement of David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. This movement is telling us something about what God has been doing in David's life. What can he do but just cry out in 
and doxology. He begins with who am I and ends with there is no God beside you. It's almost as if David finally recognizes that his desire to build a house really needed to be rebuked gently in a way and understanding who it is that will truly build the house. It's really grace upon grace that David is realizing that any good has come to him. God knows him and still blesses him. How many of us recognize the, the sinfulness of our sin, the weightiness of our sin, and when we recognize that we have been saved by grace and our sins have been washed clean, we come before God and say, in despite of you knowing me, you still love me. You still bless me. Seeing grace always leads to doxology, to worship. What ignites praise for David? Who God is and what he has done. What he has done specifically for his people. David realizes as he looks not only on his own life, but the people of Israel, they are a redeemed people, a preserved people, a privileged people. David cannot help but look at the flock amongst him and praise the shepherd. And this is how it should be. John Stott tells of a retirement ceremony for the Reverend Paul Gibson, who was the principal at Ridley Hall in Cambridge. And I thought this was wonderful. Someone had painted his portrait, and the portrait was unveiled at this occasion. And in his remarks, Mr. Gibson expressed a gracious and well-deserved tribute to the artist. He said that in the future, people will be looking at the portrait and not ask, who is this man? But they'll ask, who painted this beautiful portrait? So David leads us to ask not, who are these subjects, but who is their king? Who is the artist who, who created such a great plan of redemption for a people so unworthy? Who is the one who has gathered them together and who has cared for them so well? And this is how it should be. What I love about this prayer is it turns from uh, praise to petition. And so in closing, I want us to be informed and helped by this. What is to be done when the promises of God that we cling to from his word seem to be denied by our experiences? What is to be done? God, I thought that it was supposed to look this way. The answer is turn the promises into prayers and plead them before the Lord. And that's what David does for us. He instructs us in praise and he instructs us in petition. Father, do as you have promised. That is at the heart of David's prayer and should be at the heart of our prayer. Yahweh's forever promises give our prayers passion, boldness, and confidence 
to actually pray them to God. Do as you have promised for your name's sake. And so here is one major task for our prayers today, to take God's promises and pray he will bring them to pass. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Help us, Father, this morning to understand that you do not need us. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God, to you and you alone, we ascribe glory and honor and praise. O Lord, you are God, and your words are true. You have promised those that come to the son of David will be saved. The son of David promised that he would not lose any of those whom the Father has given him. The son of David, the Lord Jesus, promised to raise up his people on the last day. The son of David promised to grant his people eternal life. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless your people, so that we may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of David be blessed forever. Father, may we behold our God seated on the throne. Come, let us adore him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.